This evening, what I'd like to do is, well, let's give you a title for a start of, and then we'll work from there, which is self to not self. One of the most perplexing ideas that often um, people find within the whole realm of traditional Buddhist psychological understanding is this movement from self to not self and what that actually means. And what I want to do tonight is explore it in a number of ways, partly through uh, the traditional understanding of this, but also through what it would mean for us to live in that way as a not-self. And I'm really picking up literally on the final words that Christina said last night. I said when we got back upstairs last night, you know, what were those words? And these were the final words, really, which were about becoming a creative, responsive, and compassionate human being. How is that possible? And what are the obstacles that prevent that happening in our normal lives? Not that we don't demonstrate some of those qualities in our lives, but they seem to be blocked, don't they? Quite often, um, they don't manifest, perhaps, in the, in the ways that we would like them to in our lives. You know, there is compassion there, often very limited. You know. There is responsiveness there, but limited, again, usually to a narrow circle of responsiveness. And there is a degree of creativeness, but often it's stultified by our conditions and our habits. And there I've given you a little bit of a clue about what's stopping this. So that's what I want to do this evening, uh, is make that movement. But initially I want to sort of juxtapose um, a couple of poems in order for us, in a sense, to set up the problem. Um, because, as you know, in traditional Buddhist thought, we really start with analysis of how we got ourselves into the state we have in order to understand how we can unravel it. It goes very much back to Christina's idea of who's going to untangle the tangle. You know, we've got to understand the tangle in, for, in the first place to untangle it. And so I want to just juxtapose a couple of poems. And the first poem is a poem by Rilke. It comes out of Neugedichter, out of his new poems. And I'll give you the title of it afterwards. His vision from constantly passing bars has grown so weary that it cannot hold anything else. It seems to him that there are a thousand bars, and behind the bars, no world. As he paces in cramped circles over and over, the movement of his soft strides is like a ritual dance around a center in which a mighty will stands paralyzed. Only at times the curtains of the pupils lift quietly. Something enters in, rushes down through the tense arrested muscles, plunges into the heart and is gone. The poem is called The Panther, and it's about a caged animal. Yeah. And I hope you'll see where I'm going with this in a second. Let me just give you another poem, a poem that's probably much better known than this one. Um, it's a poem by Stevie Smith that many of you will know called Not Waving But Drowning. Yeah? Anybody know this? Yeah. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought, and not waving but drowning. 
Poor chap, he always loved larking, and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him. His heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 no. It was too cold always. Still the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out the whole of my life, and not waving, but drowning. I think these, for me, sum up the problem, and let's see where we can go with them. I think they are very good analyses of the human condition. The first one, obviously, is about an animal, but it's about our sense of entrapment as well, about how we are entrapped. One of the things I think often we don't experience for all sorts of reasons, some of which hopefully I will touch on as we go through this, is that entrapment has conditions which act like bars to us. They stop us moving, seeing, being creative, being compassionate, being responsive in the ways that Christina talked about at the end of her talk last night. And perhaps coupled with that sense that we can feel as if a lot of our life is spent not waving but drowning. Yeah. Gosh, you're all looking so sad. <laughs> I'll try and cheer you up as I go along. <laughs> so in a way, these, I think, are... Very lovely summation. Okay, okay, the first one is not specifically about the human condition, but I think applies very directly to the human condition, that sense of entrapment. In many ways, we are entrapped by, entrapped by certain behaviours and certain ideas about who and what we are, certain identifications which keep us in that entrapped position. And like the caged animal, we often gaze through, glimpse something, and it's gone. That something that we glimpse occasionally is perhaps freedom. Freedom from compulsion. The compulsion that drives us often into areas that we revisit in numerous amounts of times in our lives. There's a a classical term, Sanskrit Pali term, I don't want to bombard you with Sanskrit and Pali terms this evening, but there's a nice one which really, I think, describes the sense of entrapment. And some of you will know it, particularly if you've had exposure to Buddhist ideas. Uh, this idea of sangsara. Yeah. In the Western world, we made a perfume out of this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sangsara describes entrapment because it actually derives from a root in Pali and Sanskrit, which means to go round in circles. <laughs> yeah, to go round in circles. So um, I'll leave you to reflect for perhaps for a second or two. Is that the way sometimes the tonality of life feels for you, going round in circles? I'm not saying entirely, um, but often we find ourselves caught in repetitive patterns and webs, don't we? where we appear to be going and experiencing that sense of deja vu. Um, And really what we're talking about in this path, in perhaps the bigger sense, not just the MBCT, MBSR, MBI type sense, of breaking out of that. Breaking out of that circle of repetition. Something that keeps us bound to that circle of repetition 
and very importantly, is this sense of I and who I am. A sense of identification, a sense of identity. Yeah? And that's really what I want to explore this evening, is that sense of identification and identity. That keeps us, in a way, entrapped. One of the most perplexing, as I said right at the beginning, one of the most perplexing ideas often that seems within Buddhism and Buddhist understandings, and is absolutely vitally important in this path to liberation, this path to freedom, because that's really how it's described as a path to freedom, is understanding how we actually are. Not how we would like to be, but how we actually are. Often in popular books on Buddhism, um, I see this usually as a transition from self to no self. Yeah. Presumably some of you might have come across this idea that Buddhism talks about no self. Yeah. There you were, you all happily came into this room this evening thinking you were selves and suddenly there's a great big self-shaped hole in your being. No, this is not what it's about. I'm, I'm making fun of this for a deliberate point. This is not what it's about. Um, the one thing that I think we can discern, and you can you know, have to take it on my word unless you go and actually look at these early texts in Buddhism, is that the Buddha is extremely practical. Anything he talks about has a practical outcome. Yeah. If we start getting intellectual about it, actually, as historically the Buddhist tradition does, um, in its centuries, you know, in its two and a half thousand years, it moves very far away from that practical side. When it starts getting philosophical, although some of this might be interesting philosophically, it moves a long way from what the Buddha is really talking about. When he's talking about this idea of moving from some sense of fixed self to some idea which gets mistranslated as no self, he's talking about something very practical. He's talking about something very psychological, something very emotional that we're moving away from. In his culture, just a little bit of history. In his culture, it was, um, well, there's a whole group of texts. Some of you might be involved in yoga and will know these. They're called the Upanishads. Yeah. The Upanishads present a doctrine of a fixed and unchanging self, and that is the real self. Yeah. Um, giving you a very, very thumbnail sketch of it here. It's more complex than this. But the idea, I think you have to hear, that there is something fixed and unchanging within experience, which in a sense represents the real you. Yeah, the real you is somehow fixed and unchanging. And what the Buddha is doing historically is coming along in a sense deconstructing that idea. Yeah. He says, every time I look inside myself for this sense of some kind of fixity, I don't find fixity. What I find is change. Yeah. One of the major tenets of Buddhism, again, to be investigated practically, not just to be heard as an idea, one that Christina, I think, mentioned, I think we all agree with, is the sense that everything is changing. Yeah. Everything is changing. Yeah, not a new idea, it's there in the ancient world, the Buddha is not the first one to express it, but he does it in a very, very radical way. Everything is changing. Absolutely everything that we come across is in a state of flux. Yeah? 
If that is the case for the universe, as far as we know it, if everything is changing, doesn't it sound rather strange if you go, everything is changing, but not me? <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Have you noticed, actually, in uh, ordinary locutions, in uh, ordinary English language sometimes, and it happens in other languages as well, that people say, that's the way I am. Yeah, that's the way I... Can you hear the implication behind that? Yeah, that's the way I am and I can't possibly change. Yeah, but you will. <laughs> yeah. uh, the big change is, of course, um, the ones that the Buddha talks about initially, the existential changes that we go through of old age, sickness, and eventually death. Yeah. And... No matter how much or how particularly we address the problem of mortality, it's something that still lurks in the background, isn't it? It is the unknown. Yeah? And so the idea of something fixed and unchanging often gets allied with the notion of some degree of immortality, yeah? some kind of post-mortem survival. Yeah? I, I, love, I love quoting this. There's a little Woody Allen-ism when he said, I don't want to live on in the memories of others, I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> I think it sums it up, really, doesn't it? In many ways. So, what we're talking about is, in a sense, the psychological security that's often offered for us by the sense of something not changing. I, I really do find it hard to believe that in the contemporary world with so much knowledge that we have of the physical world, and even if you're not involved in that world, it touches us, doesn't it? The sense of the expanding universe and even the popularism of science, that actually anything, anything could be fixed and unchanging in that. But what, of course, that fails to do often, in, in, you know, if I was going to use a philosophical term, in that ontological sense of something being fixed and unchanging, is it fails to touch us emotionally. We get it intellectually, just like we often get the sense of everything is changing intellectually. And, yeah, I joked about it, but that sense of, well, not me. Everything is going to die, not me. Yeah. It, we don't get it emotionally. We don't get it in a real embodied sense. Yeah. Um, no matter how much exposure to it, we have some idea that there is something permanent here within us. So we're really dealing not with perhaps what I call a more philosophical, intellectual idea or notion. And this is often the way it's expressed in some books on Buddhism which I can be quite critical of, um, that it takes a very ancient notion that perhaps people don't believe in anymore in these days. I'm not saying that people don't, absolutely, but I think given you know, the amount of scientific understanding we have, I think unless you work towards, you know, if you're unless you're embedded in a belief system that has that as a true, as a sort of kind of belief, then I think it's very difficult. But where I do think it becomes a problem for most of us in, is in the sense that psychologically we just do not get it. Emotionally we just do not get it. Yeah. 
This is not a new idea, as I say. It's there scattered throughout um, different cultures. The idea that somehow if we start to investigate, really, ex our experience, what we find is change. Yeah? And when we start to investigate the notion of the self, we also find change. Even in the 17th century, I say even in, but in the 17th century, oh, sorry, the 18th century, um, the, the Scottish philosopher David Hume said, every time I look inside myself, I don't find a self. What I find is a bundle of perceptions. Yeah. I can't pin anything down to which I would call this is myself. Contemporary neuroscience shows that any notion of a sense of self, as far as we can understand it, um, isn't locatable in any part of the brain. Yeah. There are different functions going on which we might associate. And in a very early way of trying to understand this, this is what the Buddha had. So I want to explore that a little bit, this idea of it. But really holding in the mind that this has a practical import. It leads to freedom. And it leads to freedom through the disidentification with so much that happens to us that we turn into something solid and then call it ourselves. We live narratives. As human beings, we live narratives. Um, and a lot of those narratives are associated with our thoughts, and we believe them. And again, this is something that I hope you well know from your MBIs, you know, whichever one you're involved in, um, we take to be true, that those thoughts are true. This is how I am. This is who I am. The feminist novelist Jeanette Winterson wrote a, a lovely book. If you've never read it, I'd really recommend it. It's called The Passion. Anybody read this? No? Yeah, one person. Great. <laughs> There's one person in the whole room who's read this. Uh, in The Passion, but if, if Jeanette Winterson. Yeah. She's a prolific novelist, feminist novelist. And she writes this lovely book called The Passion where it's a magical realist story. So it's kind of allegorical. It's magical realism in that whole genre of literature. And in it, people do really weird things, you know, as in magical realist stuff in general. For example, the main character, the woman character, has webbed feet and she walks on water. Yeah. But the thing I want to come to, it points out, is that you get all these weird events and you get this almost little refrain that runs through the book. It says, trust me, I'm telling you stories. That's almost the tenor of our thoughts, isn't it? Trust me, I'm telling you stories. Yeah. There appears to be something veridical about it. There's something that appears to be something truth-telling about our storytelling, about ourselves. We live narrative selves. Yeah. We are narrative producers. We are story producers, and we live the narratives. And some of those narratives become self-fulfilling narratives if we identify them with them enough. Yeah. So what we're partially doing with the notion of not-self, not-no-self, there's a crucial difference here. And again, hopefully, if we have enough time, this will become apparent between that one little consonant in the language, you know, from the no to the not. Yeah. One says absolutely something does not exist. Yeah, it's the actually opposite idea to something being completely fixed and eternal, isn't it? 
I hope you can hear that. They're two sides of, in a way, the same coin or the same philosophical argument. Either something exists eternally or it doesn't exist at all. This is kind of bipolar logic. Yeah. It either is or it isn't. Yeah. The Buddha has a middle way. And many of you will know that actually the path is often described as a middle way. Yeah. And the middle way is the middle way of the practicality. Yeah. Between the idea of nothing and something eternally. Yeah. And that comes in the sense of what a not-self is. And to stop beating around the bush here and get to really the heart of what this teaching is about is about that we are not selves in the sense of being fixed selves but are process selves. Everything that we, you know, everything that supposedly constitutes us is process. That process is not at an end. I hope even just in what I've said here, you get a sense of the liberating effect of that. Whatever idea you have about yourself, whatever idea will either lead to one of two things. Either over-identification, which will actually lead to pain, often distress, or a sense of liberation if we disidentify with that. So we're liberating ourselves from a sense of who we think with the emphasis on the think we are. Who we think we are. And as you can probably gather, who we think we are often limits our possibilities as human beings, severely restricts them. We become those panther, they become the panther pacing around the cage, pacing up and down, glimpsing freedom, which sometimes penetrates the heart, but never really penetrates our whole being yeah. as a possibility for us. I think one of the wonderful things about this teaching yeah, is the sense that it gives us that possibility. It doesn't say it's easy. Yeah. It does not say it's easy but it does give us that possibility of that sense of freedom. And that freedom is glimpsed, I would say really glimpsed, and really can be seen in those liberating moments when we start to unbind ourselves, untie ourselves from restrictive habit patterns and narratives about who we think we are. Yeah? In those patterns, as I've suggested, we limit ourselves severely, tie ourselves down. There's a whole set of, um, for example, things which are referred to, I'm not going to go through the list, but they're referred to as fetters. You know, you know what a fetter is? It's where you tie up a horse to stop it running away, or an animal. You take its leg and you tie it to something strong like a peg or a, you know, a post that is tied down and can't get away from that. And one of these limitations, one of these fetters, is a view of ourselves. Yeah? It's called Sakaya Ditti, which means a self-view, a viewpoint on who I think I am. Yeah? And that ties us down.
And as you can see, what we're doing is, in a sense, unfettering ourselves from those ideas. There's lots of images like these in the early text, which I think give us that sense of being bound to something. One of the other images, just to give you another, um, which has a similar connotation to it, is the idea of a, you know, a dog tied to a post, and it simply runs round and round the post, and that post is called self. Yeah. It'll get better. <laughs> It'll get a little more cheerful as we go through. But hopefully I, I've already started on that because I've touched in with the sense that we can untie ourselves from this. But we have to understand the process. We have to understand what it means to be an I and how we hold that sense of I-ness. Yeah. In our ordinary daily lives, whether we fixate, contract around it, that sense of I, or we hold it simply in a looser way. Yeah? Now, this is not becoming a no-self. I, I personally think that's dangerous and it's frightening. Yeah? And if I was being really serious about this, this is something that actually goes with degenerative brain illnesses. You know, becoming a not-self, becoming a no-self, I should say, rather than a not-self. You know, when you lose aspects that keep that sense of self in place, such as memory. You know? And in unpacking this in the traditional formula, there is a traditional formula which is known as the khandhas. You know? The khandhas, the word khandha is a strange word. It really means aggregate, what is lumped together that describes the processes of what the self is. And it's really trying to understand what the self is that makes any kind of me meaningful sense of self, excuse me, the meaningful sense of self. And it really, you know, you've probably got the idea now that Buddhists are list fetishists. Yeah. Here's another list that we get. <laughs> which is there's five things to this list. And I'm going to go through them in a very traditional way, perhaps initially, um, and then start to expand it outwards. The initial way of looking at this list is we start with corporeality. Anything that's going to be vaguely there as a notion of the self depends on a corporeal, embodied sense, yeah? on something physical. It also depends on having feeling tones. That should be familiar to you by now. So this is the second part of it. We have Vedana. Initially we have Rupa, which actually means a form. Any kind of thing that's a form, a shape. Actually, literally the word means in the original languages. And then we have feeling tones. Yeah. You can't imagine being a self without having feeling tones of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neither. We also have, and this is a really important one, I, yeah, I'm not going to talk about the Vedana because we've talked about that quite a lot over these past few days, although there's a lot more to be said about it. But we have this sense of what's called sanya, which is sanya really means perception and discrimination. Yeah? Part of what being a self depends on is our perceptual abilities. Yeah? Our abilities to perceive and to discriminate and to recognize. 
you know, to recognize things. So there's a couple of really important elements tied up with this notion of discrimination. And um, discrimination here goes with a sense of language. Yeah. We are thoroughly linguistic beings. Yeah. Not to say there's not other aspects to that. And I really include things like images here in language too. But we are thoroughly linguistic beings and we identify things through language, don't we? Yeah. So what's important if we have language and identify things through language is memory. There's no point in having a piece of language if you can't remember what it applies to. Yeah. And memory is crucial. I don't know about you, um, but most of my sense of self is based on some aspect of memory. You know, the fact that I can remember certain things right way back in my early childhood through, you know, for example, as I was relating this afternoon a little bit, my travels to India when I was very young, staying there, dwelling there. I can't remember everything. I can remember bits of it, you know, important bits that really struck me, but I can't remember all the detail. And I can remember, you know, up to my present age, a lot of it. But sometimes I can't remember what I did last week, you know, or what I said yesterday. <laughs> you know, anybody have that similar problem? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so our self that's built up out of memory is actually quite tenuous, isn't it? And actually memories will come in and they drop away and then other memories will arise. Yeah. On a disaster kind of scenario, uh, when we're younger, we have a good sense of memory, expanding sense of what we can remember and eventually it starts to close down a bit towards the end of life. And I'm not talking about any sense of degenerative brain illness or disease. It starts to close down. And so if we're really trying to base our sense of self on this discriminative perceptive ability, it's actually something that's not under our control. You notice that. It's not really under our control. This is one of the distinguishing features. If it's going to be a real fixed self, it should be under our control. I'm going to go back a little bit because that observation applies also to our Vedanas. They're not under our control. doesn't mean they don't have conditions. Remember, we explored that. They have conditions, but they're not under our control because those conditions might change. Yeah. My tastes might change. My perceptions might change upon which they're based. Yeah. And my conditioning might change. And also, well, I think we all know this one. I certainly do every time I look in the mirror in the morning, you know, from my hairy days in the, in the, in the early 70s to how I am now, uh, this body has changed. You know, and it's not under my control. You're not controlling whether you can become sick or not. You know, I think I'll decide to become ill today. You know, that doesn't happen like that, does it? You know, no matter how well you look after yourself and protect yourself, you'll still be open to illnesses and disease and things like this that simply are not under our control. So all of these three facets that we've just so far examined are not under our control. And the same follows for the other facets that perhaps we might want to contract around as being our sense of self. The fourth one is really habitual tendencies and patterns in our behavior. 
actually, when we think a lot about who I am, we actually we could probably draw up most of us on a list of habits. Yeah, this is who I am. I'm the person that does this. I'm the person that doesn't do this. Yeah? And these are habitual. Yet they change over time. Some of them might remain similar, but they change and they vary over time. So those habits, or that has a technical word called sankara, which actually means something which is formed and both forming as well. It's forming our views, it's forming our approaches to life, and actually, this is again one of those things that we're deeply tied to, is our sense of habitual reactiveness to things. Now, again, I don't think it needs really to me to remind you, but I will, that of course this is a big part of what we're operating with and dealing with in mindfulness-based approaches. Yeah, this is what we're dealing with, is actually not trying to deliberately go in and alter habit patterns, but the, to let you become aware of them. Yeah. That I am actually, in a sense, in a Socratic sense, giving birth to my own understanding of who I am, and that these are there within my experience. Yeah. These are what are actually determining and governing a lot of my dimensions of life. You know, I know it went out bust quite recently, but I always think habits are us. <laughs> is the new... <laughs> is a new way of looking at this. Finally, there is another thing that we feel often to be our sense of self, which is consciousness. Yet, one of the aspects of the way that it's looked at in Buddhist thought and was eventually picked up in the late 19th century by Western thinkers was the idea that consciousness wasn't so much a thing as... Um, a form of intentionality. And what I mean by that is that the notion of consciousness and the world arises at the same time. Because I'm not conscious without being conscious of something. I hope this hasn't gone over your heads, but I'm not actually conscious without being conscious of something. So it's dependent on which object. You know, that could be a thought, it could be a wish, it could be a hope, but it could also be that clock on the floor here. So it doesn't matter what the object is. It doesn't have to be, in a sense, an object out there in the so-called real world, but it can be any object, and that is fluctuating, dependent on this. Now, I've gone through that in quite a lot of detail. Um, you know, not as much detail as I would like to if I had enough time to go through it. But I hope you can see, actually, if we start to cling to these, any one of them as being ourselves, it will give rise to one phenomena. That phenomena is dukkha. Yeah? If I cling to a notion of myself as being my body, that is going to give rise to dukkha. Yeah? In other words, if we're onto a bit of a hiding to nothing with this, because it's going to change, and it's not under my control, no matter how much I desperately try to control my physical appearance and try to stay healthy and everything else, I'm going to age. Yeah, and eventually, of course, yeah, as the Woody Allen quote, we're going to die. Yeah. If we try to cling to Vedana as being ourselves, that's a little bit more tenuous. Yeah. We probably don't cling to our likes and dislikes, our preferences, our preferentiality as being ourselves. But it's a large part of what we often conceive to be ourselves. You know, 
pleasant, unpleasant, like, dislike, which is built on it, the movement towards something, you know, the movement away from something. Yeah. But these are not going to remain the same. They're going to change. Conditions change. You will change. You know. um, I'm sure you have all noticed, as I suggested the other morning, how your tastes have probably changed since you were a child to how you are now. Yeah. And they will still continue to change in your lifetime. So if you've got to kind of nail the flag of self to that, we're nailing it to yet another changing phenomena that I can't control. And I would say the same for all the others, because I'm aware of you know, time is getting on and there's other areas I want to cover here. But we're, if we are trying to cling to those, then dukkha is the direct result of that. Dukkha is the outcome. These are often referred to as the Pancha Upadana Kanda, the five kandas of clinging or grasping. Yeah. Five kandas of clinging or grasping. The kandas in themselves, and I want to make a distinction here, are ways of describing and ways of accessing human experience. Can you see that? We can access our experience through any of those doorways. Yeah. I would suggest, actually, I mean, for example, although it's, it's generally a synonym, consciousness, well, that's our contemplation of mind. Yeah, it's a slightly different word that's being used here, but it's generally synonymous. Yeah, we can use that as something that we can have access to, looking at our changing mood states and the changing objects, because often those are associated with particular thought forms that are, you know, remember the metaphor of dying our minds. We can look at the habit patterns that are arising really closely. And all of the other kundas become gateways to investigations and examinations, embodiment, obviously, through the notion of you know, the first of these, our corporeality, you know, our sense of em embedded embodiment in this world. So these are all actual aspects. In themselves, the kundas are not a problem. What is a problem is when they become kundas of grasping or aggregates of grasping when we grasp after them and what we have to think of is that that grasping is a contraction around aspects as if we're desperately trying to find something we can hold on to as being us and identify with yeah the word, again, I said I wasn't going to give you much parley, but I think this is a useful word. The word that's used, you've probably heard it, I said pancha, kandha, pancha upadana kanda. Uh, upadana is the word that means grasping. In, in ancient Indian languages, this was used to refer to fueling a fire. Yeah. In ancient Vedic ritual, which was the context of the Buddha's life, if you like, in ancient Vedic ritual, it means literally putting the wood on a sacrificial fire. You know, so if you were going to, you know, I don't know, sort of put the coal on the fire or put your logs in your wood-burning stove and that, in ancient Indian languages, this would be referred to as upadana. Yeah. I'm just fueling the fire. Yeah. What the Buddha is talking about is this fuels a particular fire and it fuels 
the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is what it does. Um, if you want another image, grasping after the five khandhas is like grasping five burning logs and not putting them down. Yeah. Holding on to these five burning logs. Yeah, there's a whole reason for the reason, f you know, there's a whole meaning behind the why um, fire is used as a metaphor in Indian thought. But it's like grasping that. Imagine how painful that is. Grasping after five burning logs. Yeah. So what we're essentially doing from this more traditional point of view is learning to put down the logs. Yeah. Learning to put them down. And becoming a self is becoming the processes that those five khandhas represent. Because the khandhas themselves are all processes. I was rethinking this quite recently, and I kind of came up with an idea that what was, what's actually going on in the khandhas is more akin to this. So, for example, if we're talking about experience, then the khanda of our form, our physicality here, coming through the embodied senses, is a way of registering. Yeah, we're constantly registering things through the senses, aren't we? That touching, being touched. Yeah, that's been quite a theme, hasn't it, during the week? Touching and being touched. And we're registering that through the senses. My senses palpate the world. And you know, the five normal senses that we conceive of palpate the world in a particular way. And my mind palpates thoughts, images, you know, the more immaterial side of it. But this is all happening physically. The mind is an embodied mind. I really want to stress this. In early Buddhism, the mind is an embodied mind. Yeah, it's not something that consciousness is somehow outside of the body. Yeah. It's really deeply associated with embodiment. So if I took the last of the khandhas, consciousness, consciousness is embodied consciousness. Yeah. In a sense, it has all, if I, if I listed these, if I had a board and listed consciousness at the bottom, it has all the other four aspects as, if you like, its objects. Yeah. Constantly, perceptions and feelings and habits and, of course, the body and the senses are arising in my perception constantly. I'm tempted at this point to say, well, if that is the case, and all of these are processes, wherein is the problem? Because actually what I think the Buddha is trying to suggest is that we get back to that sense of the fluidity that we are. Become a verb rather than a noun. Yeah. And it's very interesting, of course, that a lot of these words in the original language are actually verb forms. Yeah. They're describing processes. Yeah. I think this is actually a great elevation, I told you things would get better, of the human condition. Yeah. That instead of being a noun, a thing, because remember, nouns name things, become a verb. Become the process that you are. 
So we move from the contraction around the sense of our thingness, yeah, I'll hopefully explore that a little bit further, into the openness of possibility in being more of a verb form. So if we go through these, you know, instead of just body, what we've got is this registration of the world through our senses. We've got the appraisement of that world that we encounter in pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. It's just the appraisal that we all go through. Remember, this is impersonal. You know? It's a kind of judgment, but it's a pre-verbal judgment. It's a pre-cognitive judgment. We can't help but do it. Remember all those things that have been said so far about Vedana? Yeah, that's what we're doing. We appraise our world. And that's really useful. <laughs> I'm sure we wouldn't have survived as a species if we hadn't have had that. Yeah, knowing what to move away from and what, what to move towards. Knowing that fruit over there has, has got a horrible taste and actually is probably poisonous. And knowing that one I can eat. You know, don't go into that wood because the saber-toothed tiger is going to eat me. You know, these are quite useful things to know. Yeah. And actually, really what we register them as is pleasant and unpleasant, and sometimes neither, in, in a way that's linked to a state of unknowing. Yeah. It's linked to an a state of unknowing. I, I can't actually put it in either of the other categories at this moment. If I, perhaps if I look at it a bit more closely, it might fall into one of the other categories. Yeah. Does this make sense? Yeah. So we have that, and then we have stereotyping. So in order to perceive something, in a way I have to stereotype it through a piece of language. Yeah? I stereotype it through a piece of language. A big question, actually, if you want to have a question that lurks at the back of your mind is, if I've got language, and it's always being applied to experience, can I experience anything new? Yeah. Because actually I think that's what mindfulness is dedicated to, to re-experiencing the world in new ways by holding language in a different way. Yeah. By holding it in a different way, so we begin to perceive in different ways, even if we have the same pieces of language to identify with. Yeah. But that's a slightly bigger thought. I'll just leave that one with you as a little one to go to bed on. <laughs> yeah. So there's a stereotyping that goes on through our perceptual processes. There is also a readying to act, which goes with our habitual processes, yeah, which is this fourth dimension. Yeah, this fourth dimension of the habitual patterns, technically generally translated as the formations. Yeah, it's that which is formed will be modified in terms of our experience and then you know, taken in and replicated in the way that we approach or move away from things in our lives. And finally is the consciousness which actually has any object at all, which we could call attending to or orientating ourselves to something, having this particular object. Yeah? Okay, that's the technical stuff about this. Where is this all going? I've, hopefully I've seeded some ideas about this in your minds already. It's going into the idea if we allow these to function and can see these functioning, I don't want to go down too much about that route of just seeing. I think there's other aspects as Christina was pointing out last night, but if we begin to identify what is actually happening, you know, 
but not over-identify with them in terms of grasping, then we allow ourselves open to possibilities of perceiving things in new ways. Yeah? Opening up to experience. I don't know if you've noticed that being an eye is a pretty difficult business. Yeah? It's a pretty difficult business, isn't it, being an eye? Trying to keep yourself together as an eye in a consistent form, generally for those around you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what you don't probably want to live with is somebody who's going to constantly manifest something different. <laughs> they probably don't want the same from you either. And it's a terribly difficult task, holding yourself together as an eye. Yeah and identifying yourself and others as a particular person. But have you ever had this experience when somebody comes up to you and said, you're that sort of person? How do you feel? Yeah. I would suggest, without getting a sort of consensus from you, because we haven't got time to do that, is you'll probably feel quite, hmm. Yeah. Yes, sometimes. I know that's the way I feel. I mean, I, perhaps I'm pushing this on to you, but let me just test it out and say, when I hear that happen to me and somebody goes, you're that sort of person, aren't you? I go, oh, yes, sometimes. Yeah, but not all the time. So there's something of reductionistic when we do that to ourselves. Yeah when we reduce ourselves in this particular way, when we contract, contract about around one of these functions and try to turn it into a self. When I grasp after, because actually some of the things we're going to contract around are habit patterns. And one of the big habit patterns that we're engaged in is craving. Yeah? Is craving. In traditional Buddhist psychology, um, it's not the self that craves, but craving gives birth to the self. Yeah? I'd say that again. It's not the self that craves, but craving gives birth to the self. Yeah? I would suggest you probably feel more a self when you're grasping and craving after something. When you like or dislike something really strongly. Yeah. It's when the self often is given born, is born in that moment of grasping and, and craving. It can be through all sorts of things that we crave. And remember, craving in Buddhist psychological terms has two dimensions to it. It's that which we want to crave to have and a craving to avoid. It's a perpetual task. Hence, it's often described, the literal word that's used, I won't give you the word, but the literal word means, an un, or has the implication of, an unquenchable thirst. And this is what we're engaged in, in an unquenchable thirst to substantiate ourselves through craving. Yeah. To become something more solid. Yeah. To actually contract and <laughs> not be free. Yeah. I'm sorry about the pessimistic picture, but you know, and this is a generalization, and so we have to examine it in terms of our own experience. But often we're retreating from our sense of freedom and building, if you're using that poem I started off with, our own bars. 
yeah, our own limitations. And then we hanker after a freedom which we almost is almost a romantic ideal. But actually is there if we started to, to deconstruct the bars. The bars of grasping and craving that give birth to that sense of self. And that self infects everything. That kind of self really infects everything. Um, Iris Murdoch, the novelist, used to talk about the blind, restless ego that sat in front and obfuscated our vision. Yeah? It's like a great big blob sitting there in front of our vision in which we go occasionally and get a glimpse around the sides of it. But actually, there's this huge obstruction to our vision of being able to see possibilities for ourselves because it's tied to that sense of, actually a word the Buddha never uses, of egotism, but of a self sitting right there in the middle of our experience around which we run, just like the dog tethered to uh, the post. I want to give you another, I've got a bit of time left, so let's do this with you. I want to give you another quotation, and this will show you the problem of, of the kind of self that we're talking about. Let me just find it. And this is a quotation from Virginia Woolf out of one of her novels. I don't know if anybody's read it. It's called The Years. Um, it's one of her lesser-known novels, but I think it's a fantastic novel. And I'm only going to give you a portion. So you're coming into the narrative part. And it's a conversation. And, and <laughs> you have to bear in mind the gender here because you're going to hear it's very gendered, this conversation. It's between a man and a woman. And uh, the woman is talking at... The man is talking at the woman here. And... You know, so you're entering midpoint in the conversation here, so I'm going to do this with you. My people, he was saying, hunted. Her attention wandered. She had heard it all before. I, 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 he went on. It was like a vulture's beak pecking, or a vacuum cleaner sucking, or a telephone bell ringing. I, I. I, I. He couldn't help it, not with that nerve-drawn egotist's face, she thought, glancing at him. He could not free himself from his eye, could not detach himself. He was bound on this wheel with tight iron hoops. He had to expose, he had to exhibit. But why let him, she thought, as he went on talking, for what do I care about his I, 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 or his poetry for that matter? Let me shake him off, she said to herself, feeling like a person whose blood had been sucked, leaving all her nerve centers pale. She paused. He noted her lack of sympathy. He thought her stupid, she supposed. I'm tired, she apologized. I've been up all night, she explained. I'm a doctor. The fire went out of his face when she said, I. <laughs> That's done it. Now he'll go, she thought. He can't be a you. He must be an I. She smiled, for up he got, and off he went. <laughs> I think we see the problem of relationships. <laughs> Encapsulated in that idea. Yeah. 
being an eye. Notice the imagery. And I only really want to point this out because, you know, obviously it's not a piece of literary criticism. This is actually tied very much to the ideas that we've been examining already. We're tied to that. In a way, we can't help it and expressing that. You know, we're, we're shackled, we're fettered, we're tied to that notion of an eye that arises out of those khandas when we grasp after them. Yeah. The habit of being an I. Yeah. However, to draw towards the end of this talk, what would it be to be a not I? Yeah. What would it be to be a not I? So shackled to that sense of I-ness that perhaps we possess. That which actually cuts us off from relationship rather than helps us and liberates us towards genuine relationship with others and the world. Yeah? Because that's what we're talking about. So when we talked, when I mentioned at the beginning, this has a practical import, but this is not just a piece of mere, if you like, intellectual, philosophical speculation. This has a direct effect on the way we live our lives and the possibilities that we see for ourselves when we begin to ungrasp and live the process. Yeah? When we begin to ungrasp and live the process and perhaps start to be those creative, responsive, compassionate being that we can be by liberating ourselves from the shackles of tying ourselves to aspects of those khandas that we think represents that I. Yeah. This is what we're doing, so that we become, or have at least the opportunity to become the possibility that we are. Yeah. We can all, in a sense, die before we are dead by limiting our possibilities, by constraining ourselves and shackling ourselves to a sense of identity, which is often a narrative identity. If I had more time, I'd explore why we do this, and I will only mention one dimension, of which I'm sure has occurred to you all as I'm speaking here, which is a sense of fear of trying to stabilize and make this world much, much more certain for ourselves. We try to stabilize and make ourselves into an I, into a thing, and turn the world into a thing because it's uncertain and it's unfrightening. And going back to my first talk, as Pascal says, the present often hurts. And it's out of that fear of hurt that we often do this. Yeah. Yet the world is an uncertain place. Yeah. It's a really, really uncertain place. We never know what is going to happen. Yeah. A, a sort of anecdote to finish off with. When I, I was actually telling Jaya about this, and Christina's heard me say this before. When I was in India in the 80s, um, and spending quite a bit of time in the um, mid to late 80s, I was staying in Delhi and um, somebody came in from Switzerland, from Delhi, and come, came to the centre where I was, uh, I was living at that time and staying. 
And he was English, but it, yeah, he'd lived in Switzerland most of his life. Now, the scenario is this. You come from the perfectly ordered society. You land in a place that does not work in that way, where you can queue a whole day to get a railway ticket. Yeah, and this is how it was. I mean, it's changed now. It's not quite like this now, but this is how it was in the 80s. So it was a lot of chaos, a lot of disorder. Day three, he was having a breakdown. <laughs> so we decided to um, send him up to somewhere peaceful. So we decided to send him up to the foothills of the Himalaya. And uh, we managed to get him a railway ticket on an overnight sleeper, which took him up to the place that then you get a bus to go up to where the da Dalai Lama lives, up in Dharamsala. And we got him down to the station, put him on his train, found his sleeper. It's really quite a difficult business. You have to examine all things and find out which sleeper you're on and things like that. And we put him on his train and all stood there relieved um, that he was going to somewhere peaceful and quiet and wasn't so chaotic as it was down in Delhi. Uh, waving goodbye to him, and the train pulled out and left the carriage behind. <laughs> the reason why I say that, things are uncertain. <laughs> Just to finish off. I might add, by the way, two days or three days later, he flew back to Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> well, things are not under our control. And least of all, that really is under your control, unless we, pay, unless we place a tremendous amount of energy into it, is actually becoming that eye. Yeah? There's an enormous amount of investment of energy and the question is, if we're to become that creative, responsive, compassionate person, isn't our energy better placed in opening to that, becoming the verb that you are, becoming the process that you are, and becoming, hopefully, your possibilities in life? So I think what the Buddha opens up is a vision of human flourishing, which is deeply profound, in the seemingly difficult, I hope I haven't made it too difficult, notion of what not-self is and the implications behind that and the investigation of it. This is really kind of an introduction to a talk <laughs> rather than a talk, but I hope some of it's got across in the sense of trying to inspire you to think, well, what would it mean to live as a not-self? This doesn't mean that I'm going to not use first-person language. Buddha uses it all the time in the text. It's how much do you identify with it? Yeah. It'd be very strange in most of our European languages, wouldn't it, if we started to drop the first person out of it? Yeah. Uh, we might understand, but somebody going around going joyful, <laughs> sad, <laughs> happy. But it adds to very weird conversations after a while. So what we're coming back to, in a sense, <laughs> it's like a Harold Pinter play, isn't it? <laughs> you know, sad, happy, sad. <laughs> but what we're ceasing to do is over-identify. In that, in that, in that disidentification, that deconstruction opens up our possibilities.
of really flourishing and becoming that responsive, creative and compassionate person. Without that, we are fettered, tied. I'll finish there for this evening. Thank you, everybody, for your attention. Shall we have a, a minute's quiet just to let things settle before we do a bit of walking? <laughs>